Welcome back to another episode of The Mushroom Show. Now, if you're thinking about mushrooms that have psychoactive properties, you're probably thinking about mushrooms from the psilocybe genus, or psilocybin-containing mushrooms. But there are other mushrooms that have psychoactive activity that contain no psilocybin whatsoever. Of course, I'm talking about the mushroom Amanita muscaria, which contains two psychoactive compounds, namely ibotenic acid and muscimol. Now, unfortunately, there is a lot of conflicting information about this mushroom. Conflicting information about the history of use, about their current use, and about what they may or may not do to our minds. For example, a lot of people think that these mushrooms are neurotoxic. But is that true, or is it just poorly interpreted science? And that is why today I'm super excited to be talking to Kevin Feeney. Kevin is the author of Fly at Garrick, a compendium of history, pharmacology, mythology, and exploration, which basically contains everything you would ever want to know about this incredibly interesting mushroom. We talk about the history of this mushroom, how it grows in the wild, what compounds are actually inside of this mushroom, and what effects those compounds might have on the human mind and the human body. We also talk about not only historical use cases of this mushroom, but also current and potential future use cases of this mushroom, and hopefully bust some of the myths that might be floating out about this mushroom. So with that all said, let's jump right into the interview with Kevin Feeney. Kevin Feeney, thank you so much for joining us on The Mushroom Show. Glad to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. Look forward to speaking with you. Yeah, so you have a book called Fly Garrick. I got it right here. It's called The Fly Garrick, a Compendium of History, Pharmacology, Mythology, and Exploration. And really, it is one of the best books on this mushroom uh, ever put together. It's an amazing resource that was much needed. But before we dive into that, and before we dive into the mushroom, I really just wanted to back up a little bit, set the scene for people who are listening, um, and was wondering if you could let people know a little bit about your background and what led you to write a book like this in the first place. Sure, sure. Um, right. So in, in terms of writing the book, uh, you know, I think probably like many people, I became interested uh, in mushrooms as a teenager, uh, ha having some experience with the psilocybe uh, variety, and um, I discovered my, you know, my parents had some mushroom field guides on the bookshelf, and I would kind of peruse through and, and see what was there, and I, I remember turning and, and seeing the fly agaric there. And, you know, there's some recognition of that mushroom because it's so uh, kind of prolific in, in pop culture and, um, you know, in children's books and, and imagery that's, you know, produced uh, for children, really. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, if I was going to go out and if I was ever going to find, a, you know, a, a psychoactive mushroom, I was pretty sure I thought that I would be able to, <laughs> to figure that one out. And, um, but I, I had a lot more reservations about trying to identify, um, you know, any of the little brown mushrooms cause there are just, you know, thousands of them. Um, and, you know, and the fly agaric is, is fairly, uh, in, in the scheme of things, in the scheme of mushrooms, it's it's fairly easy to identify, um, which is not to say that there aren't things that look like it that aren't. And uh, so there's always, you know, precaution is, is warranted and certainly knowing what you're doing and being able to recognize uh, all the important attributes is, is important. 
but in the scheme of mushrooms, it's one of the easier things to identify. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned the, you know, the the traditional what are thought of as magic mushrooms or the psilocybe species and the little brown mushrooms uh, compared to the fly agaric. And I think a lot of people who don't know anything about you know magic mushrooms and they put that in air quotes assume that it looks like something like this because, as you mentioned, it's a mushroom that's so prolific. Um, in the culture, it's so kind of well known. And although, yeah, you could get into the nuance of the different you know, types of Amanita, it is relatively easy to identify. It's, it's kind of hard to miss, you know, a big, bright red mushroom that's kind of growing in the forest. So um, it's, it's really hard to miss, right? So you said, um, you know, you had a, a, an interest in this mushroom in general, right. um, uh, kind of when you were younger and, and what led you to, to want to write this book in the first place, I guess. Well, so one of the things that, um, you know, this is kind of looking back at the, at the 1990s and there just wasn't a lot of information available about this mushroom. Um, and I had found a, uh, there was a, a mail order company where you could order these mushrooms. And I, I interview the, the guy who started that business in, in the book, um, so they were available and, and I was able to acquire some, but it was really difficult to figure out how they were supposed to be used. And, uh, you know, the, the frame of reference was the, the psilocybe or psilocybes, which, you know, uh, you're looking at, you know, two to four grams typical. Um, and typically that's not enough uh, with the fly agaric. It uh, requires a little bit more. Uh, than that to have an effect. So it was really sort of confusing. And there was also all this information about it being, you know, potentially uh, poisonous or damaging to the liver or kidneys. So so there was a, a lot of missing information in terms of the safety parameters and p- potential dangers, as well as, as dosing and other things. Um, so one of the ideas or thoughts behind this book is that I'd always been looking for something that was really sort of comprehensive that would kind of dive in into this mushroom and, and explore uh, the many different angles uh, of the mushroom. And so uh, to some degree, this is kind of the book that I had always wished that I had, uh, you know, as a, as a teenager or somebody, um, a young adult, um, and just not being able to access the information. And, and of course the, uh, the internet was in its, uh, nascent days at that point. Um, but the internet is always kind of a crapshoot for what kind of information you're going to get. Um, so I, I really wanted to put something out there that was interesting that was readable and accessible and something that really kind of covered a lot of the groundwork uh, to make it a good introduction, a broad introduction uh, to this mushroom. Yeah. And I think kind of what you're, you're zeroing in on there. And uh, I I like the idea that you scratched your own itch in a way, creating a book that you wish or resource that you wish existed. I mean, I think that's such a perfect thing because you probably assume that, you know, if you wish it had existed, there was lots of other people that also wished something like this existed because the thing about this mushroom is there seems to be a lot of 
you know, vague information on the internet or contradictory information or sometimes straight up misinformation. And it's really hard to get a good uh, idea of what this mushroom is all about. I mean, a lot of the guidebooks just list it as poisonous without going into any sort of nuance, right. which I'm hoping we can uh, talk about. Uh, you, know, there's, you know, there's this whole idea that it's um, neurotoxic, which maybe there are some, you know, hints of truth in that but again it requires a lot more nuance so yeah there seems to be compared to the psilocybe mushrooms there seems to be a lot more uh conflicting information and you mentioned an interview that you did in the book with the with the mail order amanita muscaria and it's funny i mean reading through that because um there is a lot of that uh vague information as well there's a, there's a funny discourse there where they have a disclaimer and it's like people ask what are these mushrooms for and or like what are these they're mushrooms what are they for they're for and they list all these things but obviously not consuming them because you know they 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 don't want to sell them to consume them so i just thought that was like a really funny disclaimer that you know people were selling these poisonous non-consumables they're called right Uh, people were buying them but it was still pretty unclear what they are and what you're supposed to do with them um so let's dive into that a little bit like what what more do you know about uh that particular company like why people were buying these mushrooms and why people who were selling them were so worried about explaining exactly what they were for yeah well i think uh so one of the things that uh in the united states in the mid 80s there was this act that was i think it was called the drug analogs act and this was created in the United States, and it was meant to uh, address this issue that was happening that uh, people were finding ways to create new drugs that were similar to things like cocaine and heroin, but were different. Um, because cocaine and heroin were listed as illegal drugs, but if you tweak the molecule a little bit, you can maybe make something that's more powerful um, and it's not illegal because it doesn't have that molecular structure that's cited in the U.S. law. Um, so they came up with this Analogs Act, which basically said, you know, you know, this substance, you know, cocaine, heroin, you know, ecstasy, all these other things or anything that's like it. Um is illegal. So they kind of created this vague sort of space that gave law enforcement a lot of flexibility to go after people uh, that had substances that were kind of not clearly illegal, um, but allowed them to kind of make the case and prosecute people uh, for things that aren't listed as scheduled or prohibited substances. Um, So there was so that was happening and the Reagan administration uh, in the U S is kind of famous for really ramping up uh, the drug war here. And of course uh, he and Nancy Reagan were famous for this uh, just say no campaign. I don't know if that spilled over into Canada at all, but it's really sad um, <laughs> campaign. I don't know how else to describe it. Um but, you know, there was a lot of effort in creating this social perception of uh, drugs and drug use as being extremely dangerous and scary. 
uh, and people that using it extremely dangerous and scary. Uh, so I think at that time, even though the Ammonite muscaria uh, has never been prohibited in the United States, uh, I think there's maybe one or two states that prohibit it within the states. Uh, Louisiana is one of them. Uh, but generally, broadly speaking, it hasn't ever been illegal. But there's a sense that even though it's not illegal, if you're taking it for the purpose of, you know, altering your consciousness, that that in itself is is seen as sort of an inherently criminal act. Um, and so there was this kind of effort to sidestep this kind of prevalent ideology at the time that was altering your consciousness makes you a criminal and makes you engaged in criminal behavior. Uh, and so I think that was part of the thinking behind it, um, you know, and, you know, so the long disclaimer goes into, you know, the things you can do with it, you can decorate with it, you can, you know, use it as an ID specimen, you can put it on an altar, but, you know, don't throw it in somebody's eye, don't stick it in your orifice, <laughs> don't do these things that might be potentially dangerous, uh, you know, sort of kind of tongue-in-cheek element to it. Um, and and I think part of that also was, you know, just in response to kind of the increasing litigiousness where uh, companies had to put these long disclaimers on their products, um, you know, because people were doing things like diving into pools that are three feet deep. And so now they've got to put a thing on it that says no diving. Um you know, so I, I think it was in, in response to to a couple of different things like that. Yeah, and I always find that kind of hilarious because um, it, it, the same thing we saw in Canada, like before the legalization of cannabis, for example, you know, there would be shops that sold bongs and they would say for tobacco use only, or, you know, they would sell uh, spores uh, for microscopy use only. And I can see why the companies do it, obviously, because there's that whole layer of liability, but everybody knows it's just, uh, you know, it's just kind of made up. So I, anyways, I thought that was a pretty funny exchange in the book. But again, to the fact that people were purchasing these things, obviously not just to look at, uh, they were intending on, on using them. And I guess this is backing up quite a bit, but um, Amanita muscaria is a mushroom that can have psychoactive properties, which are different from um, the traditional magic mushrooms or psilocybin containing mushrooms. So what is it about the mushroom? What are the compounds inside of the mushroom that actually have these psychoactive effects? And, you know, what are people using them for if they do? Right. So in like in the uh, psilocybin or psilocybes, you have uh, psilocybin and psilocin, which are tryptamines that act on the serotonin system in the brain. Uh, but in the Ammonita muscaria and in other psychoactive uh, Ammonitas, you have uh, isoxazole compounds, uh, specifically uh, ebotenic acid and muscimol. And these act on ebotenic acid, acts on glutamate receptors, and, and muscimol acts on uh, the brain's GABA system. Uh, so the mushroom then is acting on a very different part of the brain. And and this is also quite distinct from most of the what I kind of term as classic psychedelics, which are, um, you know, either tryptamine um, 
based uh, ergolines or the phenethylamines, which include kind of mescaline and MDMA and things like that. Um, and a lot of these com those compounds tend to act on the serotonin or dopamine systems, and their effects tend to be fairly similar. There's clearly distinctions between the different substances. Um, but here we're working on a GABA system and it's a very different uh, part of the brain and, and the effects are quite different. So GABA is a part of the brain uh, that's also um, affected by alcohol and benzodiazepines and things like that. So the amnina muscaria, for example, can affect coordination and, and balance in high doses the same way that alcohol does. Um, and that's not something that one experiences with classic psyche psychedelics uh, like this philosophy mushrooms. Uh, so there are some distinct features uh, like that. Uh, one of the other distinct uh, features is that it can uh, produce kind of more um, it can produce more kind of delirium, not necessarily delirium types of experiences, uh, but it can cause somebody to be pretty disconnected from the real physical world. Uh, also in a way that typically doesn't happen uh, with psilocybin mushrooms. Um, so that also adds to some of the, the dangers there. Um, that potentially on, on a high dose, uh, if somebody doesn't know where they are, uh, then they may not be aware of, of cars that are driving by. They may not be aware of the temperature outside, right? So it could be really cold. Someone should be putting a jacket on, but they're just not responsive uh, to that feature of the environment. Interesting. So you mentioned two compounds. You mentioned the ibotenic acid and you mentioned the muscimol. I imagine there's different levels of these compounds in the mushroom, depending on maybe the stage of the mushroom, the part of the mushroom, the how the mushroom has been prepared. And I imagine that these compounds have different effects. So what is, uh, are, are they both just as responsible for the psychoactive properties or is one more responsible than the other? Like what are the differences majorly between the ibotenic acid and the muscimol? Right, right. So there's some unknowns, but muscimol is uh, around five times more potent uh, than ebotenic acid. And uh, there's this process where ebotenic acid, uh, the technical word is it decarboxylates, it loses a carboxyl group. Uh, but the simple uh, explanation is, is that it degrades uh, into muscimol, which is the more potent of the two. Uh, so usually people that are interested in this mushroom are looking for ways to cause this process to take place to increase the potency of the mushroom. So both compounds are psychoactive. Um, ebotenic acid is uh, thought to be kind of more, more stimulating and thought to be more responsible for uh, issues surrounding kind of nausea and things like that that can be caused by the mushroom. Um, but there's also a bit of a lack of, of clarity there. And because of this relationship between the two compounds, um, it's not necessarily clear if uh, ebotenic acid 
it's possible that it doesn't even cross the blood-brain barrier. So it's possible that the effects are muscimal. Um, so one of the things that causes this decar uh, decarboxylation or degradation to happen is uh, exposure to acidic conditions. So one of the thoughts is that the acidic conditions in the stomach would help convert some of the ebotenic acid into muscimol. And so this is kind of one of these processes. Um, and then the muscimol would go cross the blood-brain barrier and cause the inebriating effects. So there, there needs to be kind of more studies to figure out what the exact roles of each substance are. Um, and this also comes back to, you had mentioned before, uh, the idea of neurotoxicity. Mm -hmm. So ebotenic acid is used uh, by by brain researchers as a lesioning agent. So it is injected directly into the brains of research animals to cause lesions to specific areas of the brain. And of course, this is a very handy tool because it works very specifically in the way that researchers want it to do. Um, so that helps in, in understanding brain function and, and doing certain types of research. So one of the things that's happened in kind of the online communities and, and discussions about this mushroom is there's this discussion about neurotoxicity. And so <clears throat> in, in addition to wanting to maximize muscimol content because it's more potent, there's also kind of this discourse happening about eliminating ebotenic acid uh, because it's a neurotoxin. So one of the questions, though, um, and the big gray areas is that, to my knowledge, there aren't any people that are, you know, boiling up mushrooms and putting it in a syringe and somehow <laughs> uh, <laughs> injecting it into their brains. Um, so, so there's a bit of a, a disconnect and a little bit of kind of misunderstanding of, about what's happening and I think sometimes people don't realize that uh, the manner that a substance is ingested uh, affects how the substance works in the body, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was just going to dig in there a little bit. And I've heard that before, too, about the neurotoxicity and the brain lesioning uh, effect of ibotenic acid. And you hear that and it's quite scary, right? You think, oh no, this, this uh, mushroom is going to cause my brain to turn into some sort of Swiss cheese or something. But again, you, you hearken back to, you no, know, it's, you know, that was, if you inject it directly into the brains of mice and rats, it can have that effect. But I imagine there's other substances that we might use on a regular basis that if you also injected them into your brain would probably cause an issue. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily the ibotenic acid as much as the method of uh, uh, consumption. Right, right. And, you know, to take an example, um, you know, cannabis, for example, if you smoke cannabis, you get one effect and you get particular compounds that are active uh, through inhalation. But if you ingest it, there's a metabolic process that happens where the compounds uh, that enter the bloodstream aren't the same as the compounds that enter the bloodstream when you smoke it. Hmm. Uh, and so this is one of the reasons why 
why people have these experiences of, you know, locking themselves in a closet for 12 hours because they thought they're going to have this nice, pleasant experience that they're familiar with, not realizing that you're essentially ingesting a a different drug uh, when you ingest edibles. It's not the same. It's not the same experience. Um, So one could think about that in the same way with the mushroom is that, well, okay, so they're injecting ebotenic acid into the brain. But if we ingest it, it's metabolized through the body. Uh, Some of the ebotenic acid breaks down into muscimol. Some of it is uh, released in the urine. And we don't really know if the ebotenic acid crosses the blood brain area, excuse me, blood brain barrier at all. So there's kind of a a lot of question marks here. And, And even if it does cross the blood brain barrier, the way that it's introduced to the brain is in a much more diffuse manner than if it's injected into a specific place at, at high concentrations. Um, so, so for me, it's, it's just really a stretch uh, to be able to make any kind of conclusions about what orally ingesting eutonic acid uh, would do. We just don't know. And that's fascinating. I guess it just kind of adds on to the pile of stuff that we really don't know about this mushroom uh, and about all mushrooms in general, right? I think we don't know more than we know, uh, which is one of the things that makes them so fascinating, to be honest. But I guess uh, to kind of wrap that up, what you're saying is that although people might hypothesize that, you know, ibotenic acid is neurotoxic because of these studies and because of the things that it has done, there's never been a definitive study or a definitive example of somebody experiencing this neurotoxicity from ingestion of the mushroom. Right, exactly. Very, very interesting. Now, speaking of different ways that you can prepare it, that seems to be pretty important too, because I know some people can actually just eat this mushroom as food. But, you know, if you prepare it a certain way, it can have obviously different effects. And I've even heard of people smoking this mushroom. Um, so can you talk about the, the different methods of ingestion and the different ways that that changes maybe the chemical structure and how that might have an effect on, on the experience of this mushroom? Right, right. So, so this is one of the interesting things. And one of the things that's caused a lot of confusion about the mushroom is that I think for a lot of people, their frame of reference is the philosophy mushroom, right? So you dry it, you eat it, or if people are growing it, they have it fresh or do whatever. But there's not really any specific steps of preparation that are necessary before one ingests that in order to have uh, the experience that they're looking for. Uh, with the Ammonitum muscaria, the, the chemistry is a lot more complex. And so I talked about sort of the, the degradation of ebotenic acid and and demuscomol. And one of the ways that happens is by drying out the mushroom. So just that process of of drying it uh, causes a fair amount of the ebotenic acid to convert into muscomol. Um, So one of the things we see when we look at uh, the types of experiences people have when they use it fresh versus when they use it dry is we see when people are using it fresh, we see a lot more uh, kind of gastrointestinal distress. Um, a lot more people have kind of violent vomiting and things like that. Um, and the drying process through that conversion uh, reduces those types of, 
effects. Um, one of the things that's become popular recently and actually based on a study that was done back in the 1980s is uh, that if you make it into tea and you lower the pH uh, just a little bit be, uh, below three and you simmer it for several hours, it will convert almost all the ebotenic acid into muscimol. Uh, so thereby kind of maximizing uh, the potency of it. Uh, and also minimizing these kind of negative effects of, of nausea and, and vomiting that sometimes occur uh, with fresh or simply dried mushrooms. So the, so the process is important. And um, if, if you're familiar with uh, Gordon Wasson, who did uh, a, a large book on Soma back in the late 60s and early 70s, Soma being the ancient sacrament of um, kind of the precursor religion to Hinduism. Uh, but in the Indus Valley in, in India, there's this ancient sacrament called Soma that's sort of been lost to time, right? People don't really know what it is. And, and Gordon Wasson uh, put forward this theory that it was the Ammonite and Ascaria mushroom. And in his work, he looks at the Soma and how it's described in this ancient book called the Rig Veda, which is a series of, of religious hymns. And in the hymns, it discusses Soma and how it's prepared. And there's this somewhat elaborate process of preparation. And so one of the early criticisms of his theory was, well, if these are just, you know, magic mushrooms, why are they doing all these steps to prepare it? Would, why don't they just eat it? And so there was, you know, even early on this assumption that it should function the same as the uh, psilocybe mushrooms. And clearly, you know, the chemistry is different uh, and there's a lot of differences. Um, and in my own research, I, I look at those steps and I see a lot of parallels to how Ammonitum muscaria is prepared. And if you follow those preparations, essentially their process both potentiates the final product and reduces the discomfort of kind of the unrefined mushroom, if you will. So that, that's not to say that it's, um, that that knocks it out of the park, that it is indeed uh, the Ammonitum muscaria mushroom, but the parallels are quite, uh, quite significant, I think, and, um, you know, if not convincing, uh, compelling. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I guess basically what you're saying is, oh, even though you don't know that Soma was Ammonia muscaria, you hypothesize because based on the fact that if you prepared it in the same way as it was described to be prepared for the Soma, it has these effects. Um, and you also mentioned, you know, we're talking about some of the differences here between you know, psilocybe mushrooms and amanita muscaria. And even though there's definitely differences in the chemistry, there's differences in the experience, it's also different in the way that it grows. Whereas, you know, psilocybe mushrooms, typically psilocybe cubensis is the one people are thinking of. You know, it's a saprophytic mushroom. It's easy to cultivate. 
and perhaps you know that's the reason why it's taken up so much more space in uh, in the current culture and kind of renaissance of, of psychedelics or psychedelic substances but amanita muscaria is a mycorrhizal mushroom it can't really be cultivated it grows in symbiosis with other trees and plants it needs to be wild harvested what is the importance of that on the experience and some of the things i'm looking at digging into here are you know does it matter where it grows? If you get Amanita muscaria in Minnesota, is that gonna be different from the Amanita muscaria in Washington or you find it in Russia or in Canada? And um, how, how do you think that has an effect on the overall use of this mushroom? Right, well, so one of the issues is that there are a number of varieties and, and subspecies. So, um, you know, a, a muscaria that grows in uh, the Midwest of the United States isn't the same as a muscaria that grows on, on the West Coast. Um, so there you're probably looking at uh, Ammonita muscaria variation Gasawii. And over here um, on the West Coast, we have a subspecies Fleva vulvata. Um, so you have different varieties and, and subspecies. So that can potentially account for some of the differences. Um, and, and I think, you know, at the core of the question is that there appears to be, anecdotally anyway, uh, of quite a large range in the concentrations of these psychoactive compounds. So sometimes people will get a, a batch of mushrooms that are, um, you know, very, very potent at a certain level and maybe the next time they get almost no experience from it. So that's always been kind of a question mark is, is what is it that affects the potency? And, and so one of the theories has been, well, maybe it's the trees, right? So if the mushroom grows in a symbiotic relationship with different trees, uh, there's a potential that the type of tree that it grows with has some impact on the concentrations of of the compounds. Um, and this was kind of a popular thought for a while with um, the Ammonite muscarias famously used in Siberia in traditional cultures over there. And the predominant tree there is the birch tree that it grows with. So there was a thinking for a while, well, the you know, ones that grow with birch uh, are, are maybe better than ones that grow with other trees. Um, and, and I don't know that that has borne out in any specific way um, or any clear way, but we don't really have any studies comparing, uh, you know, muscaria that grow with birch versus those that grow with oak um, or, you know, cottonwood or pine or other things like that. Um, but that would be something that I think would be worth looking at. And uh, one of the examples I use, it's a little bit of a stretch because it's a, a parasitic mushroom rather than a symbiotic one. Uh, but the honey mushroom, which is a species of armillaria, is a, it's a parasitic mushroom, grows on trees. And on some trees, depending on whether it's a hardwood or, or softwood, um, it, can, it makes people really sick has gastrointestinal distress but if it grows on the other then it's really quite a good um you know culinary mushroom 
And so that has to do with what is the tree that it's growing in association with. So it's a little bit of a stretch. It's a, it's a parasitic rather than symbiotic uh, relationship there, but, but I think it still highlights the importance that the host tree might have uh, on the concentrations of compounds in the Ammonitum muscaria mushroom. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And again, it goes back to this idea that uh, it seems to be a recurring theme. It's like, we don't really know. You know, there's so many, so much stuff that we don't really know, which uh, we should, uh, you know, over the years, uh, be able to allocate resources to, to figure out. Because again, you know, this is a very interesting, in so many different ways, it's a very interesting mushroom. and. I do want to talk about the experience a little bit more, but before we dive into it, I guess one thing we should lay out for people is perhaps one of the reasons why this mushroom is so understood, misunderstood is that, you know, there are other species in the same genus that are deadly poisonous and you would want to avoid it all cases. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the majority of actual deadly mu mushroom poisonings are from mushrooms in the Amanita genus, specifically Amanita phylloidus. But there are some other bad actors, as you could say, in the genus. And I think, do you think that has any, you know, effect on people's acceptance of, of this mushroom as potentially therapeutic or, you know, medicinal uh, instead of poisonous? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, definitely. There is definitely, I think, a fear within mycological circles that that people get I, I think when when people first discover a passion for mushrooms there's a lot of kind of exuberance wanting to try things know different things and and sometimes that comes without a lot of caution uh so i, I think there's a tentative a tentativeness uh in around introducing people to the different ammonita mushrooms. Um, and I mean, it is kind of astonishing that, you know, we continue to have a number of poisonings with these things like ammonita phylloides and, and related ones every year. And, you know, part of that is, um, part of that, which, which is starting to be kind of, parsed out a little bit more in the last few decades is that people immigrate and come from different parts of the world and they have something that is a delicious edible in their home country. Um, and then they come here and it looks a lot like species that are, you know, deadly poisonous here. Um, so that's kind of one of the things that's, that's happening. And, and for a long time within mycology, um, there wasn't much effort to distinguish uh, species between the different continents. That it was like, oh, well, this looks like this one that we know from Europe. So it's the same. Um, right. And now we know that that's not true. Um, right. So there, there are these things that, that do come up. Yeah, and I think specifically you're probably referring to the paddy straw mushroom, right, or Volvariella volvaceae, and you know it looks like a little egg, and the egg shape or the egg form of Amanita floides does, you know, there is a, a resemblance. So I could see walking through the woods, you see this little egg form. You know, it's not a fully formed mushroom yet, but you go, hey, it's a paddy straw. Uh, take it home, cook it up, eat it, feed it to your family, even worse. And uh, you know, you're right. That is where a lot of the poisonings come from, because on the other side of things. Uh, there is a lot of mycophobia anyway. So you say, you know, people are 
maybe there's this exuberance uh, when people get into mycology. And I think that is true for a lot of people who really get into it. But there is also this mycophobia. And, you know, some people would be afraid to even touch this mushroom if they saw it, right? Or, you know, they wouldn't let their kids get near it or something like that, which I think is the other end of the spectrum um, is, is just as bad because, you know, uh, there's there's really nothing to fear unless you're just blindly going out and collecting any old mushroom and consuming it. So uh, there's two sides of the spectrum for sure. Yeah. And I, mean, I think that's true. And and I mean, it's it's interesting because you see in, in these online, you know, mushroom forums and things like that, you'll see somebody has, you know, people like to have their kids pose with cool mushrooms and big mushrooms. And so you'll see picture of, you know, a little girl holding up a, a muscaria and you'll see all these comments. Oh, beautiful, wonderful. And you say, some people say, you know, what in the world are you doing? Don't let <laughs> right. kid touch these. They're, you know, and so it's really interesting that there's these real, uh, and I think that's one of the things that I, I mentioned in the book that for whatever reason, uh, this mushroom seems to, to cause intense feelings uh, in people, either bad or good. You know, people either think it's wonderful or people think it's the worst thing ever. And there's not really a lot of this middle ground. And it, it's kind of hard to wrap one's head around the different ways that people react to this mushroom in particular, because it, it's such a, a wide variety of, of reactions. It's really uh, quite interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. Um... But I mean, because it is, you know, very iconic, you know, it's the Mario mushroom, it's the mushroom emoji. So everybody recognizes it in some way or another and obviously has some sort of association with it. Um, but moving into the experience a little bit, and you, you do talk about this quite a bit in your book. And it seems like the thing that characterizes the experience is that it's really hard to characterize <laughs> the experience. So I wanted to um, ask you and feel free to answer this question uh, if you want to or not, but like, have you had any personal experiences with this mushroom? And if so, like, what have you learned or what, what was that experience like? Right. Um, you know, so it, it's been varied and, you know, I've typically been quite careful with it because of, you know, that history of, um, kind of misinformation or, or not having a lot of information uh, with it. Um, but one of the things that is, is interesting about it is that it does have uh, anti-anxiety uh, properties at, at low doses. Um, and so this is one of the things that makes it interesting, I think, from a therapeutic perspective, um, and there are companies that are exploring its use in terms of, you know, treating insomnia and anti-anxiety is that, like I mentioned earlier, it, it works on the GABA system, which is also if people are having trouble with sleeping, the, the sleep aids and things like that tend to work on the GABA system, but they also tend to be, uh, addictive and, and cause other problems. Um, so that's one of the interesting things about this mushroom is, is that it's not addictive, uh, similar to other um, kind of psychedelic type compounds, is it doesn't have that quality to it. But, but it is different. It has, uh, there is definitely, definitely a, a psychedelic element or a quality to it. But there are also a variety of other attributes uh, to it. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of weird to discuss it as being an experience that's hard to describe, because 
because psychedelic experiences in general are, are hard to describe. Uh, right. But this, this is in somewhat of a different category. Um, and I think one of the things that sticks out with this is while a lot of these substances affect our perception of time, this one has a property of creating time loops uh, where people will get stuck in loops of either repetitive behaviors or repetitive thought patterns um, that can be really difficult to break out of. Um, and that can be, I think, quite frightening. Uh, and this is something that tends to happen at, you know, at, at a much higher dose, uh, but seems to be peculiar uh, to this. Uh, others may have stories of similar experiences under uh, other substances, uh, but it does seem to be a, a common enough, common enough occurrence uh, with this, that it's kind of one of the properties that stands out and I think sets it apart from other things. Yeah, that is interesting. I think I remember a story. I think it was actually Paul Stamets who tells a story where he was on this mushroom and he like gets out and he drops his camera and then he's like, oh no, that's no good. And he picks it up again and then he drops it again. He's just like stuck in this repetitive loop of dropping his camera and being worried about it. So are these, so, so these loops or these repetitive behaviors, um, they're characterized as being acute, like within a certain time period of the experience, or is this something that can cause repetitive behaviors beyond the initial experience of the mushroom? No, I, I think, you know, acute within the experience, uh, of the mushroom itself, okay. uh, you know, and probably typically happening around sort of the peak of the experience, uh, where somebody is, you know, the peaks can come on pretty quickly and, somebody thinks they know what's going on and then suddenly they're kind of stuck in this other sort of dimensional experience of time um, that often they find difficult to get out of until, until the peak starts to subside. Um, you know, and I think fortunately in those instances, the, the peak doesn't last that long, but uh, when you're in it, right. It, has that timeless quality uh, right so it does it can feel like an eternity <laughs> even if it's just you know 10 minutes um, right yeah and people yeah. also describe it as like causing kind of like a dreamlike state where it has you know it has the quality of a of a dream you know they don't think they're dreaming or anything but just again this these sound like things that are really just difficult to describe right like how do you describe a, a dreamlike feeling uh in a normal experience but uh right yeah so I, I would think one one experience that that sticks out um is uh one experience where at the peak of it i experienced time stopping it just stopped uh and I remember just being, you know, stuck in this moment and just thinking how brilliant this was. You know, I discovered this thing that could stop time. <laughs> and, you know, and so at first it was really exciting. Um, and then time started to go backwards. 
And then this was a little bit less exciting for me <laughs> right. uh, because, you know, I, I'm in my forties um, going backward 40 years uh, was not, you know, high on my list of priorities or things I wanted to do. Um, and it was interesting because there wasn't anything really that I was uh, that I was worried about re-experiencing, which, which is kind of comforting. Um, but there was also the realization that, that if time is going backwards, that I'm essentially dead, right? Because if, if time isn't going forward, I'm not having new experiences. I'm not, you know, there's no future, which is kind of akin to just being dead. Um, and, and then, uh, as you may have in your own house, we have lots of different clocks. And they're not all set to the same time. Right. Uh, so, I, you know, I remember going somewhere else and and checking the time just to, you know, just to kind of ease my mind, know that I'm not going backwards in time. Uh, and I looked at a clock that was slow. And so oh then it, yeah. it sort of confirmed this sort of backwards movement. Um, so, it, it, you know, it was a... Uh, you know, it was certainly kind of a, a peak experience that was sort of temporarily kind of awe-inducing, uh, but then later kind of somewhat frightening with this experience of, you know, this kind of idea of, of death with going backwards in time instead of going forward in time. Right. Um, no, that's, so that's not... A, so, it sounds a little bit unsettling. And it's funny because you, you described that experience like time stopped and then it started going backwards. And to you at the time, you know, probably made perfect sense. But trying to describe that experience, like, what does that mean that time stopped? You know, did the clock actually stop moving and that's what you experienced? Or did you just have, you know, an extreme awareness in a really small period of time? So it felt like time stopped or like, how do you, you know, how do you actually describe that experience? Right. It's very, it's very difficult to, you know, to describe and, um, you know, and, and clearly I, was continuing to you know move forward in time but everything was perceived as happening in reverse um so it was very you know very strange sort of thing that so it wasn't a, a time loop per se but it was something that definitely turned my perception of, of time on its head um w- which seems to be fairly unique at least in my experience uh to this substance yeah, I mean, that is absolutely fascinating. And I have heard that from other people too, this kind of time warping effect. I've heard people talk about um, being able to experience like multiple timelines of the future at, you know, kind of simultaneously. I don't know if you've ever heard of anybody speaking of that, but I mean, that sounds like a really interesting, a unique aspect of this mushroom as well. Right. I could, I could see how that might happen for sure. Right. You also mentioned um, some research that's being done right now, which I think is really, really cool about using this mushroom as a potential therapeutic and where, you know, it seems like most of the money and the research is going towards, again, um, psilocybin. There is some research going towards Amanita muscaria, and you mentioned specifically for anxiety um, and depression and stuff like that. And again, are these... um, 
treatments that are using like high dose acute you know experiences and then through the integration of that experience is helping with the anxiety or is this something where it's kind of like a lower dose subperceptual thing where these molecules are doing their work to help ease anxiety and depression over the longer term or how are these things being studied yeah so this is one of the things that i think makes the the amnita muscaria particularly interesting and and potentially I mean, potentially more valuable in a sense is that a lot of these things are looking at very small doses of the mushroom, you know, so we're not looking at somebody going into, you know, a great big kind of immersive psychoactive or psychedelic experience that they then, you know, kind of, you know, analyze or discuss with a, you know, psychotherapist afterwards or, or things like that. These are things that are um, that work on, in much more subtle ways, right? Um, so helping somebody with insomnia uh, or reducing anxiety. Um, I mean, there's a point that, um, you know, if, if people are experiencing things that aren't there, that's maybe not helpful in treating the anxiety. Right, uh, right. But, of low doses, you know, can help uh, people that have uh, uncontrolled or, or high levels of anxiety uh, potentially participate in the world or, or accomplish their daily activities in a way that, that's not disruptive in another way. Um, so I, I think it has value there in being something that you don't need these you know, kind of heroic doses or anything like that. Uh, it's something that can be used in a subtle manner. Um, and of course, more, you know, more research is, is needed to kind of, to figure these things out. Um, but there are a lot of people that are working with this mushroom for issues related to anxiety and insomnia um, and depression and, and even, uh, substance withdrawal. So people that are, uh, have addictions to maybe benzodiazepines or alcohol or other things like that, that work on that same GABA system are finding that this is something that can help them wean, uh, off of those substance because it, it acts in the same part of the brain, but it doesn't, it's not addictive. Uh, so it gives some of that sort of feedback or stimulus that the brain is wants, uh, but without, you know, without kind of feeding that, that cycle. Yeah. The, the benzodiazepine one is really interesting because I guess that's, you know, something that's notoriously hard to get off of. Uh, but as you mentioned, works on the same pathway. And if we could use a mushroom to help people get off of something like benzodiazepine or wean off of that, uh, where there's really not much currently available, or for some people, there's nothing that works for them. Uh, that's pretty phenomenal. You know, and just that one thing alone would be pretty groundbreaking to, to achieve and to introduce as a, as kind of a new therapeutic, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, that would be, that would be huge. And, and of course the problem is you have a natural product, uh, and it's hard for, you know, big business to make money off of something, you know, that grows in the woods or grows behind your house. Um, so, you know, there's hesitancy, uh, from people to invest in, in research if they don't see, 
uh, you know, if they're not seeing dollar signs. Um, right. So fortunately, it, there are several, maybe a handful of companies now that are investigating um, marketing the mushroom as a as a health supplement for the moment. Um, of course, to get you know marketed as as a medicine, you have to do uh, really expensive. Uh, kind of research and development uh, that may be hard to recoup. Uh, but there is, uh, it appears that there is a developing, um, uh, just a, a developing groundwork of uh, potential products uh, that will be available maybe in the next, uh, you know, year or two. So we'll see that stuff starting to come out on the market and it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what, what additional information we might be able to gain um, from that experience. Yeah. I think that's just so cool. Again, my view is always anything that can make people healthier and happier is a good thing to do. And uh, there can be many different ways to get there, but if there are companies working on, you know, high quality extracts of Amanita muscaria that have either been tested or are currently in some sort of clinical trial for helping people with things like anxiety, for example, I think that's just so uh, absolutely fascinating. And there's plenty of cases where we can go throughout history and look at different natural products that had absolutely groundbreaking uh, effects on, on human health. I mean, we can look at fungi for a number of them. So this might just be another step in the evolution of that journey, which I think is really, really cool. You know, a mushroom that has so much lore, so much history, but yet we still don't know so much about it. Um, it's just absolutely fascinating. I did uh, throw out to the community on YouTube that uh, we were interviewing you and to see if they have any questions. So I do have a, a bunch of questions. I think we talked about a lot of this already, but I think I'm just going to hit with you a couple uh, kind of rapid fire questions and we'll try and we'll try and get through these and see if we can answer them for, for our viewers. So uh, the first one is they want to know about the history regarding its use by the Vikings during wars, if any. And this is something I have heard before. What do you think about the legitimacy of that idea that Vikings used Amanita muscaria uh, during the wars and fighting? This is, this is a great question. And this is one that I mean, this has been kind of a popular theory for a few hundred years now. Um, and people have really been kind of dismissive of it uh, over the last several decades. And I'd mentioned Gordon Wasson earlier, and he's kind of this sort of big figure in terms of research on Ammonite muscaria in particular. And he was really dismissive of this idea. And I'm not exactly sure why it is, because he made some remarks about how this was never used in an aggressive fashion, um, but he clearly had access to, <laughs> to information to the contrary, because he, he knew all the material and he'd read all the accounts. So it's a little puzzling um, why he was so dismissive. And, and most people now, I think, dismiss it simply because he did. Um, but I think in terms of the effects of the mushroom, there are a couple of things that I think are, are impo important to point out. So the berserkers, uh, which is the kind of Viking tradition, right? Of the berserker warriors um, were, are described as kind of being impervious to pain and to having 
you know, kind of the strength of a bear and, and being just kind of these incredible, nearly invincible warriors. And so some of the things to think about, uh, and we can look to Siberia, which, you know, Wasson did, and we see that traditional peoples use this mushroom to help with their work. And there are stories of people walking, you know, 10 miles with a hundred bag pound of flour on their back, you know, after eating these mushrooms. And I mean, these are tasks that are, you know, veering into the realm of, of superhuman. Um, I mean, somebody could do that, but it's, they would probably be on their back for a few days afterwards. Uh, so there's these stories and, and, you know, as recently as the nineties, uh, people were using it at, to aid with work. Um, you know, so women who are, you know, work tanning hides and, and sewing and, um, men who are tending the reindeer, trying to keep up with the reindeer. This is something that was seen as giving them, uh, extra energy, but also in, increased levels of strength and stamina. And the other thing we see is that it has pain-killing properties. And, you know, I was describing earlier that, you know, people could be out in the cold uh, and have no awareness that they are cold, which, which is one of the dangers of the mushroom. Um, but so you do have this, uh, these examples of people experiencing uh, levels of strength that, that they're not used to having, uh, as well as this kind of imperviousness to pain, which are, are both important components of, of that berserker theory. So I, I think there's, I think there's more to explore there. I, I don't think it's a, it's a slam dunk, uh, but I think it's people dismiss it too readily without exploring, uh, the details and, and just to tag it an extra piece on there is that the the berserkers specifically are are Odin's warriors uh, within the broader Nordic Germanic uh, mythology. There's a close connection to uh, Odin, and Odin has close connections to several uh, psychoactive substances uh, within uh, the Nordic and Germanic lore, uh, including the Mead of Poetry. Uh, so there are some there are some things connections that require, I think, more exploration. That is uh, fascinating, and I guess that's similar to the explanation of like, is it the soma? Because it's like, well, you know, it's not definitively so, but there are a number of puzzle pieces that fit together really nicely. So you could quite easily make the case that it is at least potentially true. Right. And you mentioned with the increased energy and the decreased uh, pain or the increased pain tolerance. And the fact too that you know this mushroom would grow in that in in those areas no problem and quite prolifically probably you add all those things up and you say why not right it's almost like prove it prove it wrong right 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 exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah that's very interesting okay um, another question is well somebody just says it's not really a question but they said I want to grow them just because they look cool lol so uh, we we did t kind of talk about how these are mycorrhizal mushrooms and you, you can't just necessarily grow them like you'd grow oyster mushrooms or Psilocybe cubensis but maybe I'd ask you do you know anybody that does you know purposefully maybe attempt to cultivate them or have there any ever been attempts at cultivation of this mushroom that have been somewhat successful? People are, are definitely interested in, in growing this mushroom. Uh, one of the things that I've heard of people doing is, is creating kind of a, a spore slurry 
where they maybe they toss out the caps that are kind of rotten that they don't want to use and kind of mix them up with water and then they'll you know dump them on the exposed roots of of trees maybe around their house or at a local park or something like that and um i'd i'd heard from somebody that had, you know after doing this for maybe 10 or 15 years <laughs> that some started to grow there um there's no way to know it's because of anything that they were doing or you know it it's just something that might have just happened that the spores got there some other way um the other thing uh to look at would be to try to f- identify uh tree farms that have these mushrooms growing on them and this is one of the ways that the mushroom is a it's a northern hemisphere mushroom right so it's prolific and and fairly cosmopolitan throughout the northern hemisphere but it's been introduced to australia it's been introduced to south america and it's been introduced through basically um ornamental trees or landscaping trees that have been shipped from you know the uk or somewhere else and it just so happened that there was already a pre-established mycorrhizal relationship with that tree. So it got transplanted with the mushroom already attached to it. Um, so this is kind of how we've, we've seen it spread, you know, through the world. So that would be something to look at is if you can find a tree farm that's got them growing on it. Maybe you can get a, a sapling or something that's got uh, that pre-established relationship. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess the theory being if we could somehow harness uh, the natural way that it grows. And I don't know. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned um, Australia. I was just watching a video. It was actually from a couple of years ago, but it was a golf course in uh, Tasmania that was like absolutely covered in these mushrooms. And um, I didn't realize they weren't uh, native to, to the area, but it makes sense. It was on a golf course. So maybe something got transplanted and eventually it grows there. Um, but Tasmania interestingly enough, is an anagram of Amanitas. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of cool and uh, very apt for the amount of mushrooms that were there. Uh, Another question that somebody asked, I think you already covered this, but I just want to make sure it's the same thing, is they they had heard repetitive motion syndrome is pretty common uh, with these mushrooms. And is that what you were getting at with this idea of being stuck in a loop or getting into kind of these behavioral loops? Is that repetitive motion syndrome? Or maybe that's just a different terminology or is that something different entirely? Uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, I would have to kind of follow up with, with the person asking the question, but certainly the repetitive behaviors, uh, which could be repetitive motions, you know, somebody, you know, maybe putting their hand through their hair and they just can't stop doing that. They just keep doing it over and over again. Um, the other thing is that people sometimes uh, get, they're not quite ticks, but a, a tick is kind of the, maybe the best explanation for it. But it's sort of a, a you know, just that quick muscular movement that's kind of uncontrolled. Um, and people seem to think that that's connected with ebotenic acid uh, specifically. Um, but that is some something that people sometimes experience is kind of uncontrolled uh uh, small ticks and muscle muscle uh, kind of spasms uh, that they can't control. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's something to, to look into a little bit more. And and that would be, I guess, during, you know, during the experience, it's not like somebody would maybe consume this mushroom and then all of a sudden get a tick that they have, you know, months down the road or something like that. It's would be an acute sort of symptom that would uh, go away as the effects wear off. Um, one final question here from the audience was, uh, the question was just, is the reindeer thing legit? And I think what they're getting at there, I don't know if it's the Santa Claus Amanita connection, but I think specifically the thing that people talk about is this whole idea that people would feed these mushrooms to reindeer, then drink the reindeer pee uh, and, uh, and, and experience the effects of this mushroom through the reindeer pee. So in that context, is the reindeer thing legit? <laughs> so, uh, it does appear that reindeer like this mushroom. Um, and, and other animals eat it as well. Um, the reindeer urine thing is a, is a little more difficult. There's definitely practices of urine drinking uh, in Siberia, um, but this is typically described as people collecting it from other people who've used the mushroom. Uh, but there was a story, um, a, a blog post by Andy Letcher uh, some while ago, and he's the author of uh, the book Shroom, that he had met somebody who who gave this account of being in a uh, ceremony up, up in Scandinavia, uh, I think with some Sami people, where where he reported that they had collected uh, reindeer urine and and boiled it down and, and ingested it. And so that's, a, I mean, at this point, that's third hand, right? It's second hand from Andy, third hand from me. Um, so, so these, there are these rumors, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the mechanics uh, or logistics of collecting urine from a, a reindeer would be, um, but <laughs> but certainly the practice of, of urine recycling is something that was practiced in Siberia and uh, studies have shown that there are, you know, significant, significant concentrations of ebotenic acid and even a little bit of muscimol in the urine of people that have ingested the mushrooms. And that shows up about an hour to 90 minutes after ingestion and, and can be detected for uh, several hours uh, afterwards. Wow. And actually, just to dig into that a little bit more, is there any reason why, you know, this urine recycling process or urine recycling method is used? Is it because it maybe clears out some of the, you know, the potential toxins of the mushroom or something like that is one thing I've heard before. But like, what is the primary reason for, for doing that? That's a good question. Uh, so most of the older literature is kind of collected. Um <clears throat> from explorers and, and prisoners who were held out in Siberia, um, their accounts suggest that it was an issue of, of scarcity, um, that maybe there wasn't enough of the mushroom, and it might have just been particular years where it was scarce um, and where the mushroom might cost a lot of money. And so this would be a way for the properties of the mushroom to be shared uh, among people um, who might not have access to the mushroom, uh, otherwise. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of how the historical literature explains it. Um, it's hard to know if this is still practiced at all. Uh, it's been really difficult for, 
I think, you know, anthropologists and others to study some of these things, uh, you know, particularly during um, when the USSR was still around. Um, but even in the last 40 years, there's, uh, it can be, it can be hard to get kind of the permits to study and, and to go out and study. And um, so it, 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 we don't know if, if that practice still continues. And if it did, we could maybe get a better perspective on, on what's happening and, and why. Interesting. Well, amongst uh, the funding for figuring out how we can cure anxiety and depression, uh, I'm suggesting funding and figuring out what the, what the P thing is all about. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> right, kidding you. Right, right. Uh, um, an absolutely fascinating mushroom. And again, you did such a good job in, in summing up so much information in this big, beautiful book called Fly Garrick, the Compendium, History, Pharmacology, Mythology and Exploration. If there is one thing that you could say, kind of before we land this plane here, if there's one thing that you'd want to put on a big billboard so everybody in the world could learn just one thing about this mushroom and clear up one little piece of misinformation, what would that be? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. There's so many different things to talk about. I, I guess it would just be to, to keep an open mind. And uh, listen to other people's experiences. Um, I mean, I think everybody has to has to be careful. You know, there are definitely ways to to get into trouble if if you don't know what you're doing or or don't do things kind of the right way. Uh, but I think keep an open mind. There's a lot of there's great history here. Uh, it's a fascinating mushroom uh, that I think has a lot of uh, untapped potential. I totally agree with you. And I also love that advice. There's always so much more that we could learn. And I think an inquisitive and open mind is really the only way to go forward, not just in mushrooms, but I think in so many things in life. Uh, and I love that idea of a, of a growth mindset. And I can tell you personally too, you know, when I first started getting into mushrooms way back when, I also had these same misconceptions about Amanita muscaria that a lot of people do today. I thought it was poisonous. I thought you should avoid it. I thought you probably shouldn't touch it, all of these crazy things. And the more I'm learning, the more I'm fascinated by, by this mushroom. And I know there's still so much more to learn, but I wanna thank you so much, Kevin, for your time and sharing your, your depth and, and width of knowledge about this mushroom on The Mushroom Show. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Awesome. And uh, yeah, if we talked about uh, anything that we talked about in terms of links, I'm going to link down to Kevin's book in the description as well. And I'll put a bunch of other links in there as well if people want to dig in and dive more. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, I think that's it.